Welcome to the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute at Harvard University. My name is Hasit Shah. Nearly a decade ago, I was working for BBC News in South Asia and was sent to cover the aftermath of a huge cyclone in Myanmar. Most of us weren't even allowed in the country and had to remain in neighbouring Thailand, gathering whatever information we could from other journalists, aid workers and anyone who talked to us about their experiences. At around the same time, Chrisa Pugh, who's now pursuing a PhD here at Harvard, was also in Thailand where she was teaching English. She became interested in Myanmar and has since devoted much of her stellar academic career at Oxford and now Harvard to understanding the country's complex, unstable social dynamics, which have led to the current Rohingya refugee crisis. I'd been thinking about these kind of intersections of development and humanitarian work, and uh, I was just really shocked at um, the response of the. At that, that point, I really knew nothing about the country. I knew very little about the region. I was, you know, kind of just planning on um, going there and teaching English. And when I arrived to Thailand, um, there was a lot of. I was in northern Thailand in Chiang Mai, and um, there was a great deal of cross-border. Um, both relief efforts, but also kind of civil service engagement. So there were, um, you know, former political prisoners. There were former, um, like, individuals who had been involved with um, some of the ethnic insurgent groups on the Thai-Burma border. There was a lot of humanitarian development um, kind of aid groups that were working across the border. Um, and I was really um, just interested in how, like, civil society um, kind of was providing this backstop to... Um, these gaps that were being left by the state specifically, um, the Burmese junta was not providing services. They had essentially closed its borders um, to the outside world. They weren't, you know, allowing any um, anyone in or uh, essentially in or out. No, they um, weren't. They weren't. I mean, we we had to be based in Bangkok as well. Yeah. At the BBC, and we the only journalist who could get in from our side was someone who had a, a Georgian passport. Mm. If you had a British passport, an American passport, or anything which they were kind of not happy with, you weren't getting in. There were no um, external observers um, from a human rights perspective. There was no aid from a humanitarian perspective. Um, and that really shocked me. And so I began volunteering that year with um, uh, a volunteer organization um, that was based in Chiang Mai. And since then, I've just been really... Um, just really interested, really captivated by this issue that's really only gotten worse over the past decade. Right now, we're in a moment where it's one of the biggest humanitarian disasters in the world. And, you know, it's it's widely accepted as such now as well. I think, you know, the world has kind of woken up to it and taken notice. So where does your work lead you in that context? I think just to say that bearing witness um, is it feels almost trivial, but in a context in which um, the, you know, the, the, the state has really, you know, even though they've, you know, started this kind of transition to democracy several years ago, um, the state is still very um, close to outsiders. They're still very protective of um, their image of the borders themselves, the physical borders of any kind of outside intervention. Um, you know, they've kicked out a lot of aid workers and um, Rakhine State, um, you know, journalists aren't allowed to come unless they've been, you know, pre-vetted by the government, which obviously has its own issues. So I think even the ability to bear witness um, in a situation like this is very important. Um, you know, they've had um, a number of UN officials who have attempted to gain access, who've been denied. And so I think that 
um, you know, I think behind this cloak, they've been able to really, and when I say they, I'm, I'm referring to um, the military and the Burmese government, um, they've been able to really, um, you know, kind of deny, you know, call out, you know, fake news to um, reports of these atrocities that are happening. And so I think that um, just being able to be present there, um, I spent about um, two months there this past summer in 2017. Um, so being able to be there and cooperate stories to, to talk to individuals, um, to see the different perspectives, you know, to, um, to see how eerily kind of consistent a lot of the narratives are and the narratives that are kind of counter to the dominant narrative that's also, that's often, um, put forth in the media, um, just to really, you know, and of course I would never claim that there is one story. I mean, there are different, um, you know, aspects, different perspectives on, um, this issue, but the kind of continuity that I've seen between, you know, whether I'm talking to, um, you know, Rohingya, indiv- Rohingya individuals who have been displaced, um, you know, outside of um, their homes in Situe, talking to Rohingya individuals in northern Rakhine and Putidang or Mongdao. But the consistency of that narrative um, has been, I think, something that's been really important to me. Um, and the consistency in the face of what's being reported kind of in the dominant um, media. Do you face, I mean, you, you mentioned that journalists can't get in, uh, UN officials can't get in sometimes. But as an academic researcher from the U.S., do you face any restrictions? Um, so I, yes and no. So there were times um, when I was, so I was actually working. Um, so I was kind of there with two hats on. Um, so I was there as a researcher, but I was also there. Um, I was uh, volunteering with a local organization. And there were some times when I had to put on one hat and take off the other. So um, there were times when I was a little bit more quiet. Um, about my affiliation with Harvard, about, um, you know, the research that I was doing. Um, There were times when I just had to say, you know, I'm a volunteer and, you know, I'm just here to, um, you know, to make sure that our, you know, kind of doing some monitoring and evaluation for a project that we have, which is absolutely true. Um, So I wasn't um, being dishonest. Um, But there were times when I really had to kind of um, downplay um, because I think that there is this concern that, you know, where for them, you know, where's the line between research and journalism? Um, and so I think that um, anything that could potentially be critical, anything that could kind of pull back the veil, um, they were very cautious about. So there were times for sure when I, um, there was one trip that I took this summer. So I was mainly based in Situé for the majority of the summer, but I did take a trip up to um, Putidang, which is where um, the kind of predominantly Muslim area in Northern Rakhine State, closer to the Bangladesh border. And um so I, you know, it's, you have to take a boat up and it's about a five or six hour boat ride. And, um, I, you know, get to the jetty, um, in Situé and, you know, they're asking for my papers and, you know, my, I had to have a letter from like a very, you know, the border, the border ministry. I had to have like a photocopy of my passport. So it's kind of very like kind of harrowing process to go through. And so I did that, you know, take the boat ride, get off. And, you know, there are people waiting for me as soon as I get there and, you know, they're asking me for the same thing. And I, you know, I, don't speak or kind. So I had to have, you know, someone help me translate and I'm getting very flustered. And this happened a couple of times while I was there, they could just find me because I was one of the only foreigners in the town. So I would be, I mean, I was literally at um, one of my colleagues' houses and, um, you know, someone from uh, the military came to her house and asked me, um, you know, to see my papers, to make sure to validate, you know, and verify that I was there legally. And so there were, you know, and then it happened again when I was at a tea shop a couple of days later. And so I was definitely being watched, um, but I was there, you know, full in compliance with, um, you know, the government's 
um, you know, wishes. So it, you know, I, I was safe, but there was definitely a sense that um, they were kind of trying to control the information that was coming in and out. Academic research is notorious, not notoriously, but academic research is by its very nature slow and deliberate. Mm. And it takes time between research and publication and then maybe impact later on. But mm. in a live issue like the, the Myanmar Rohingya crisis, um, how do you square that off as an academic? Because you know that your research is going to take some time. Yeah. And you know that it's going to take an even longer time to publish that paper or to write that book. Yeah. But you want the impact today, if possible. Yeah. That's, that's something that I've really um, been struggling with for the past six months. Um, I, you know, because we are, I mean, we're, we're facing a humanitarian emergency. I mean, we're facing... You know, people are debating, you know, over whether or not to call it ethnic cleansing or, you know, genocide. And I think both of those are accurate terms. But, you know, regardless of what we um, kind of name it as, like this is an emergency and we have to be responsive in this moment because, um, you know, even though this is um, this persecution has been going on for decades, um, there is something that is um, the scale and the gravity of what's being experienced right now is something that we can't turn a blind, blind eye to. And so <clears throat> I definitely think that, you know, there's something that like, you know, we could all be doing like anyone that's working on this issue can and should be doing about just speaking out about the atrocities that are happening right now. Um, but you're right. There's also this sense that if you want to have, you know, if you want to have a balanced perspective, which is what, you know, and kind of this, you know, quote unquote objective perspective, which is, you know, what's really required of, um, you know, academic work, then you do need to have a little bit of distance from it, you know, both time, like when I got back this summer, I, I really couldn't, I really couldn't write for, you know, the first almost, you know, month or two um, after returning, because it just, it took me so long to kind of like physically and emotionally and like psychologically process what I had just seen and heard. And so I think that there's a sense that, you know, there, there are these forces that are pulling me in a number of different directions. Like there's an urgency around the crisis. There was this kind of emotional distance that in terms of just self-care that I needed to take. But then there's also this, you know, even kind of like greater distance that academic writing requires. And so it's, it's, you know, there's a tension and all of that. But I think that um, we don't really have a choice, you know, as you know, you can't really divide, you know, it's kind of these like, uh, you know, I talk about it as that there are, you know, these kind of like neat buckets that, um, you know, you can construct, but really, you don't have a choice. I think when you're working on issues like this, it's like you have to be vocal. And so even though, you know, even having this conversation with you right now, it's like, I was a little bit hesitant to do it, because I'm not an authority on this. But it was like, if I can use my voice in any way um, to lift up the stories and, you know, these individuals who are being persecuted, um, and their experiences, and my experience, they're bearing witness to it, then I have to do all I can to, to get that out there. 